the smoking section with Scott Latiri and Suni Khalid coming down in three, two, one, mark. All right, here we are. It's the Hack Attack. SUNY College, Scott Latiri, the smoking section. What's going on, SUNY? I'm good, my man, and you? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. What are we smoking? We are smoking the Bueno Fortuna Monte Cristo. It's Dominican Monte Cristo. It's not Cuban, but it's a nice little cigar, and it's uh, become a favorite of ours here on the smoking section the last couple of months. And I realized uh, not too long ago that these uh, Fortunas smoke very smooth and it's a very nice even burn. This is a nice after dinner cigar. It's not after dinner, it's after lunch, but we'll make do. After lunch, sitting here on my porch in Russian Hill. It's a neighborhood in San Francisco. It's a gorgeous day. Uh, let's spark it up. Let's suck on that. Mmm. Oh, yeah. That's a nice smoke, brother. Yes, it is. All right, what are we going to talk about on uh, segment four of the smoking section? I think, you know, what's going on in journalism, the attack on reporters and real journalism, it's a reality that we have to deal with as reporters and as journalists. And um, the media consolidation, politicians don't understand that, uh, in fact, they're part of the problem is that, uh, well, just take an example, the radio industry that I'm in, there are three large companies, uh, iHeartRadio, Cumulus, and uh, Intercom, that own pretty much every single radio station in the country. So newsrooms in the radio industry, the TV end of it as well, and of course newspapers and magazines, and magazines periodicals, have been decimated. Well, I came in at Time Magazine, during uh, the later part of its heydays in uh, 1981. And uh, I was an intern at the uh, Washington Bureau. There were about 20 reporters uh, working Washington, which was great. Uh, so I did a little bit of work. I started over at uh, State Department, did some stuff at Department of Energy, Department of Transportation, up on the hill. And uh, there were so many reporters, and uh, to give uh, our listeners a little bit of an idea of how time used to do journalism, uh, they would assign a story and they would put five or six reporters all over the country, uh, all over the world on a particular story. And so what we would do is we would write files, like maybe five or six files, 1,000, 1,500, maybe 2,000 words. On Wednesday or Thursday, these files would be sent to New York where you'd have a senior writer who would essentially marinate all five or six of those files together. Then it would be turned over to a senior editor. Uh, the playback was Friday night. We used to call them the Friday Night Blues, <laughs> trying to figure out how much of our stuff uh, made it into the book. And uh, if the story was uh, written and edited in a coherent fashion, excuse me, in a coherent fashion, and uh, that's why you had the sort of uh, nuanced uh, writing. Uh, but people had a lot more time to read uh, a long file, long magazine. Back then, I guess, time had the advertising revenue. A book could be 
80 to a, maybe 100 pages. You'd have a lot of advertisement that paid for the kind of reporting that you got. And, of course, the senior writer and senior editor would put into the timeies. It would be punchy. It would be colorful. And uh, that's what people got. When you read Time each week, you know more. You understand. Time flies and you are there. The last I checked, Time had closed many of its bureaus overseas and domestically. And I think the Washington Bureau may have five or six reporters. Um, I can't even remember the last time I saw a Time magazine uh, on a newsstand or when I saw one going through an airport. And um, it is paper thin, maybe a third of that. And a lot of the stuff is online, a lot of the content is online. I can't remember the last time I read a uh, Time Magazine article online. And that means that basically there's less coverage and there's so much more news that people should know about. But you've had consolidation, Time has been sold. Sports Illustrated has been sold. It used to be a, a big magazine with, you know, long pieces. People don't have the, have the time to read that. Even the friends of mine at uh, ESPN, ESPN had the magazine. They decided uh, as a cost-cutting measure to do away with the magazine. It means there's less content. And what I think perhaps we, we're, we're dealing with two kinds of concepts. One, media consolidation. Uh, less magazines being owned by a smaller number of people. It was sort of like cable television now. Back in the old days, there were three major networks, got all your information. Now, with uh, the advent of the internet and, um, you know, the uh, introduction of uh, ubiquitous information like a cell phone, for example. So you have a lot more stuff out there. There's no really common narrative uh, that escapes, and I think in some ways that's a bad thing. But I think there are so many news sites out there, fake, genuine, and it's hard to sort of uh, pick out which one. I mean, basically, I read the Washington Post, New York Times, The Independent, The Guardian, Le Monde, uh, I'll even read Haaretz, uh, which is an Israeli publication, Deutsche Welle, and uh, it's really hard. You really have to go out there and search. You have to know what you're looking for. But I think uh, at the end, in the conclusion, we're having less quality journalism uh, and you're having a whole lot of chaff that's out there. And sometimes it's difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, it was for, for a little context, let's, let's, talk, let's talk about uh, you know, the, the history of the democracy, and it's very much a Jeffersonian concept when uh, Jefferson and Madison and the Founding Fathers were sitting around deciding what they were going to do with this republic. The Jefferson faction was a one, one man, one vote, a true democracy. And Madison... Except that those men had color and uh, they didn't own property. Of course. It was an ideal that hopefully would evolve, and uh, there's a lot of moments in history where it did evolve. I mean, the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, Dr. King's speech, the I Have a Dream speech, really furthered that along, I think, the ideal. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. But Initially, it was about informing the public in a real way, having an independent press, the fourth estate, 
When Madison said we can't give every person the vote because people are stupid and they're going to vote for the first demagogue who comes around and, you know, promises a tax cut. We call it America's tax plan because it'll mean tax relief for American families, individuals, and businesses. And Jefferson's response to that was like, no, we have an independent press and we have a good educational system. That was enshrined in the First Amendment. Exactly. So that philosophy of having an independent press and educating the public to know what was real news early on was kind of the basis of our democracy, right? People have to be well-informed. People have to know what's really going on in their community. So that, that concept was, was embraced by the broadcasting industry early on with the understanding that uh, the news business wasn't about business as much as it was about a healthy democracy. When the FCC was formed, they came up with all these rules. And these rules included things like each community had to inform their community about what was going on locally. Officer Matthew Castagnola rode the 13-year-old stallion rebel for the last four years who was headed to a farm in Davis after sustaining a leg injury. Eleven horses in all are part of the mounted tradition here in San Francisco. Uh, nobody ever wanted to pet your police car, but everybody wants to pet your horse. In San Francisco, I'm Scott Letiri, KGOA 10. Each of those stations had to file an annual statement about how they were doing that. Right. And part of those rules were each and every radio station, at least, had to have their own news person, and they had to do local programming, and they had to ha carve out time for public service. So every radio station, usually on the weekends, they would have public service programming where people would call up and they'd talk about what was going on in their community. Why do you think Jesus Christ came down this earth to try and save this world? It's a mess. I wish he'd come back and save me from this call. I, uh, the, uh... In the late 60s and the early 70s, when working people were making inroads, minorities, black and brown people were making inroads, the, the Chicano movement and the civil rights movement and the, and the women's movement and the environmental movement, the pressure was being put on the powers that be and the powers that be had to respond. Richard Nixon was not an environmentalist by any stretch of the imagination, yet he signed on to the Environmental Protection Agency because he knew that that's where the political power lay, was with, with the people. So nowadays, it's been turned upside down and it all starts with Ronald Reagan who is put up on this pedestal by the Republicans as being a great man. He was not a great man. He was a shill. He was originally a Democrat. When he was losing his power, he decided to become a Republican and throw in with the corporations. I mean, he was always a shill. Death Valley days, exactly. mule team borax. Here's great news about two wonderful Boraxo hand cleaning products. First, Boraxo powdered hand soap in a new plastic decorated container. Exactly. So the powers that be just were like, what the hell is going on? We're losing the culture wars. We're having all these, these environmental rules that are put on us, and uh, we can't do That's getting in the way of our profits. And the working people, the people of color, who, who we've been able to oppress all these 200 years or so, are making inroads. We can't have that. So they got their shill, Ronald Reagan, in office, and he systematically destroyed all these protections, including gutting the FCC. He got rid of the, the fairness doctrine, which was basically if you present one side on the public airwaves, you have to present the other side. That's gone, right? He erased that. He filled the uh, FCC with a bunch of, uh, you know, togies. togies. 
and, and, you know, and shills for the corporations, and they started to systematically destroy public education, that, and that's where we're at now. So there's no more fairness doctrine. There's no more rules that say you have to have uh, a public service on your, on, your, on your airwaves. You don't have to have a news person for each radio station. Here in this market, there are about 27, 28 radio stations. There are three of them that have their own news people. 605 at the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Mostly clear tonight. Lows will be in the 50s and low 60s. Good evening. I'm Scott Letiri. Here's what's happening this Saturday evening. And the nail in the coffin was pounded there by uh, President Clinton when he signed the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Again, let me thank you from the bottom of my heart, every one of you, for making this great day for America possible. Thank you. which enabled the, uh, the corporate robber barons, these corporatists, the Kochs, the uh, Sheldon Adelsons of the world, the, uh, the Betsy DeVosses, the, the, the Eric Prince, who was in charge of Blackwater. Roger Isles, Roger right. Isles right. who was the uh, Roger Isles and Rupert Ailes. Murdoch, Ailes and Rupert Murdoch, who basically gave birth to the behemoth that is Fox. There would have never been a Fox News because that's propaganda, and that is the... That is the the propaganda arm of the Republican Party. That's essentially state television. And, and it's a cliche to say that the, that the electorate have, has been dumbed down, but it has been. Public education has been decimated. When I, went to, when I went to school, when I went to college, I was paying $200 a year to get a college education. $200 a semester, $400 a year. Now, forget about it. I was paying $800 a semester when I was at Howard, and that was an increase that went up the last year, 882 50 per semester for tuition and I think Howard's tuition now is about $20,000. So the Telecommunications Act enabled these companies that up until that point were only allowed to have one entity in each market, TV, radio and newspaper, it enabled them to buy up everything. So now we have this consolidation of the media, these these companies have come in and they've bought in all the radio stations and there's no more there's no more emphasis on on local news and local issues. So people are up in arms about what's going on in Washington and they're being propagandized. And so that's why a man like Donald Trump could become president. And you have tissue thin newspapers and you have uh, newsrooms that have been emptied. Uh, four years ago, about four years ago, Scott and I were working uh, for KGO, which was one of the leaders in news talk radio. And uh, on March 31st, 2016, we came into work, and uh, the newsroom was laid off. The, almost the entire newsroom was laid off. That's right. And at KGO, which was a powerhouse, and the reason why it was a powerhouse was because it spoke to the issues of the local people, and people responded. KGO, News Talk And maybe, well, maybe somebody will hear your voice tonight and start trying to put programs together. And Not only for me, it's for the other kids that I know. I mean, I know a kid that got shot. I know kids that have brothers that have gotten shot, sisters that have gotten shot, you know. Maybe it's time to end the terrorism in this country instead of worrying about it in other places. Sophia, thank you very much. I appreciate the call. The ratings, this may be getting in the weeds a little bit, but uh, every year uh, KGO would, would charge double the advertising rates of any other radio station in this market because they would get like a 10 share, which is huge. It's unheard of now. And now? 
and now they're at a 1.7 share after they decimated the newsroom. But it doesn't matter to these people because they're coming in. The, the, it's, it's a write-off for these big corporations. They fire everybody. They take the advertising revenue, and they funnel it up to the top. So you have CEOs of these companies like, like Cumulus and Intercom and, uh, and iHeartRadio who are making millions of dollars. $21 million was the golden parachute that they gave Fareed Suleiman from a company called Citadel that was bought out by Cumulus. $21 million they gave him to leave. And of course, uh, we were in at the end of the Dickey Brothers reign of terror at Cumulus. Uh, Scott, you may remember about four years ago, the, the suits came in from Atlanta and told us that they wanted us to re you know, they wanted to make KGO what it was before, but they never talked about giving any more resources or doing any more advertising at all. And about six months later, after they had dragged their feet on contract negotiations for three years to give us a 3% increase over three years on our salaries, um, they pulled the plug. And uh, I got to see the, I guess, the, uh, the dying... San Francisco, but I got to see the final days of that, and one of the one of the things I really enjoyed, I'd been in public radio and I'd run a news department, started from scratch at uh, WIPR because there was a news desert. The, the Baltimore Sun was cutting staff. I hired a lot of the former reporters, and we did great reporting. We did series, we did documentaries, we did long-form news, and we were covering city government, state government, county government, and I essentially used a template that I had learned when I was at the Baltimore Sun when we covered everything. We actually went out to the communities. The two main reasons behind the dramatic growth of prescription drug trafficking in the Baltimore region and across the country are access and money. According to federal law enforcement officials and prosecutors, millions of dollars flow across the internet from unscrupulous pharmacists into the hands of street dealers every day. Now you rarely see more than one or two reporters, and if you see them in television, you'll see them in every fire or every disaster. You won't see them anywhere else. You don't know anything about the texture of what's going on in these communities or the people who live in these communities. And there were, and there were resources to when there was a, a big story that was impacting people locally, like the, the, the first war in Iraq at KGO, we, had, we sent a reporter to Iraq. Now, are you kidding me? Well, I, you know, I'm also an African-American, and when the newsrooms were lily-white for the, for the uh, mainstream newspapers, you had black newspapers all over the country. They essentially had our own own coverage of our own communities, which had been neglected by the mainstream. Uh, one thing that happened after the, um, the Kerner Commission, which came out in 68, the report came out about a week before Dr. King was assassinated, said we were moving toward two societies, one black and one white. And one of the recommendations for the Kerner Commission was uh, an investment in news and information. Right, right. And there, were, there, was, a, there was a real effort to to dig, to go into the weeds, to give the reporters the resources that they needed to get the real story. Now it's hit and run. I mean, it's still an incredibly noble profession, and I truly believe in my heart that it's that it's that it's, that it's the that it, it's a calling. But it's also it's 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 the journalism profession. It's the fourth estate that is going to save this democracy right now. It used to be that every major newspaper 
used to have foreign correspondents. In a Washington bureau. Right. The Baltimore Sun won the first three Pulitzers for international reporting. About 20 years ago, they did away with all of their foreign bureaus. The Washington Post, which is truly a national newspaper, closed most of their domestic bureaus. And this is what has happened. So you don't have a bureau in Detroit or I think you have one in Chicago, but they've done away with all those bureaus. The Washington Post did away with its New York bureau, for example, which covered the United Nations as well as New York City. We, yeah, we still we have the New York Times and the Washington Post, basically, that have foreign correspondents, and that's it. The Philadelphia the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street, the Wall Street Journal, right here. And it, it used to be every newspaper. The L.A. Times, the Mercury News, the Philadelphia Inquirer. And even, even the black newspapers, like the right. Washington Afro-American, had reporters covering Korea and Vietnam. They've all been decimated, and it keeps, and that's a downward spiral. Last year, there were 200 uh, reporters that, that were gone. Most of the people that we were lost. 30,000 reporters in newsrooms across the country in the last 10 years. So, all doom and gloom. <laughs> Reminds me of the story when I was uh, working in Santa Barbara at a radio station when there was, uh, there was a rash of bank robberies. And uh, I, I called up the FBI guy, and he explained to me that uh, these bank robberies were like hit-and-run bank robberies, right? They weren't, uh, they weren't planned out real well. A guy would go in, he'd hand the teller a note that said, uh, I've got a gun on you, uh, give me all the money that's in the till. And the George Clooney. The George Clooney bank robbery and uh right. that movie with the, with the jennifer lopez I, I watched it for jennifer lopez yeah you and me both brother <laughs> but uh, i was doing the interview with him and he was explaining to me that what they what they call these uh you know in the parlance of the fbi was uh they called him a note job and there was a pause and uh i asked him i said uh is that anything like a like a hand job <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, Latiri, what did you just say? You're talking to an FBI guy. And there was a silence on the phone for a second. And I thought, that's it. My career's over. And then he laughed. Thank goodness. I am an FBI agent. See, when I was in Baltimore, one of the things I, I did when I came back to WYPR, I noticed there was no coverage of the neighborhoods that I, almost no coverage in the Baltimore Sun of the neighborhoods that I covered that really felt the impact of the crack wars, which I guess were the opioid wars when it was just black people involved, or when it was mainly black people who were involved in the criminal justice system. But one of the things that, that I really um, prided myself on was we started doing stories about gentrification in Baltimore. These old neighborhoods, these are working class neighborhoods, a minority, uh, poor whites, and essentially they disappeared. So my job was to chronicle how these are being disappeared and what's happening to the people who are in these neighborhoods. And there was, uh, there was a working relationship and there was respect among the powers that be and the reporters because they knew it was a synergetic relationship. Now, because reporters have been demonized by the, you know, by the powers that be, and we're talking, we're talking everyone, Democrats, independents, uh, Joe Lieberman was, was horrible at that, Barack Obama prosecuted more journalists than any president before and prosecuted the sources right james risen great new york times reporter he was actually brought up on charges he ended up spending like a hundred thousand dollars to defend himself because he got some papers on the iraq war that showed that the obama administration was lying to the people obama brought him up secret court the fisa court and prosecuted him 
And this is, uh, that essentially set the standard. And here we are now with fake news, Donald Trump, who has made a career off of lies, deceit. He's a con man, essentially. And, manip and manipulating the press himself right. for his own ends. But what, what, so what we've seen is a diminution of the strength of the press, but we've also seen a disaggregation of the press. So you have more outlets, but of course you don't have quality outlets. And you have some bloggers, some who are former reporters, but you have a lot of people who are essentially recycling news and giving it a spin. And one of the things I really hate about the way we have news now, I talked to a friend of mine, used to be with Time Magazine, New York Times, Washington Post. He was working at CNN and he said, uh, Sunni, have you checked out our, our telecast? And I said, no, I haven't. He says, we used to have 14 to 20 prepared pieces, two, three minute pieces, which essentially framed uh, an issue or framed a report. Now you don't have those. Said they had, this was 12 years ago. Said now we have about seven stories. Uh, most of them are foreign. And uh, basically what they do is they'll throw it to a reporter who will empty his notes, his or her notes on the air and they'll throw it to uh, three or four talking heads who will spin it so you don't know what is opinion and actually what is information, what is fact. The news outlets that are, that are left surviving is also an assembly line mentality. Uh, radio Feed the beast because it's a 24-7 Feed the site. beast and uh, the resources are drying up and uh, they're not paying, they've decimated, they've They've union busted. This used to be a union town, San Francisco. A majority of the radio stations in this town were union because this is a union town. This is San Francisco. It's liberal and progressive. But with consolidation of the media, the companies came in, and in the union contracts and the collecting bargaining agreements, they wouldn't sign off unless it was in the contract there was a no sympathy strike clause. So basically what that means, if somebody strikes at a radio station across, you know, across town or somebody, if you have a separate unit within your own shop, if you have the writers, they have a separate unit from the reporters. If the writers go on strike, if the reporters go on strike in solidarity, they can be fired and that's legal. And this is where we are right now. And that guts the power of the unions. But there is hope, my brother. What's the hope? Podcasts. You got it. Which is why one of the reasons why we decided to uh, come up with a smoking section so we can talk about issues like this that you might not hear or might not read uh, anywhere else. So where do we go from here? Uh, it's going to be ingenuity. It's going to be determination. The same thing as that reporters have leaned on for inspiration uh, for, for decades. Um, I was thinking about a story I did uh, in Somalia. Uh, I did my master's thesis on U.S. foreign policy in the Horn. Of course, you know that my first wife was a Somali. A Somali was born in Kenya. So when I was sent to Somalia for six weeks, right after the U.S. intervention uh, in December of uh, 1992, I tried to do stories that would humanize, personalize the Somalis, one of the stories of which I'm most proud. I did a story on Somali weddings, because the last Somali wedding I had gone to was my wedding uh, in uh, May and June of uh, 1983. Uh, I had a, uh, uh, an interpreter 
uh, his name Abdul Qadir Muhammad. He was marrying his uh, fiance Fatun Hassan Mohammud. And uh, so what I did, I did a 12-minute story just on their wedding because the civil war in Mogadishu had been so uh, horrific and violence was, was at epidemic levels. So what I decided to do as a piece, they were able to, because the Americans had come and there was some stability, some security, I decided to do a piece on his wedding uh, from the beginning of the wedding to the end. And I explained how this couple had come of age uh, during the Civil War, but had not been able to marry because there was so much insecurity. So I covered that. And I remember one of my uh, uh, colleagues, Corva Coleman, told me that she and her husband listened to the story and there were tears coming down uh, their cheeks. And that really got me. I said, well, SUNY, you know, we wouldn't have done that. But I sort of knew where the stories were. Uh, being a street reporter in Baltimore during the crack wars, I knew where those stories were. I knew what those people were. I didn't really see the Somalis was that much different from Americans and African-Americans in East Baltimore. So I was able to do that story with a kind of, uh, I think, a sensitivity um, uh, that was not seen otherwise because people were basically looking at uh, a famine which uh, had been interposed on the Civil War. So they looked at the Somalis as victims and not as human beings with aspirations about the future. Um, one of the one of the really things I'm proudest of, uh, Abdul Qadir got in touch with me by Facebook. He's living in Oslo, Norway. He and Fatou now have seven children, and uh, their fourth son, they named him after me. Wow. Now I have four children with my name. I have no children. That you know of. <laughs> yeah, still the best way to tell a story is to personalize it, is to give the folks who traditionally don't have a voice a voice. I recently did a story, and, and the good news is that in the newsroom that I work in, it's like what Joseph Campbell said. He said, the key is keeping your humanity within a corrupt system. Right? I do the stories the way that I want to do them, and they don't give me guff because I've been doing it long enough to where the people, the powers that be in my newsroom understand that I have a following and people will listen and I've affected change. I did a story on the housing crisis in the Bay Area, which is housing in the Bay Area is almost impossible if you're a working person and you're not in technology. And I focused on, uh, on a couple, uh, one, a teacher and, a, uh, and his wife who he met in Albania when he was working for the, uh, the Peace Corps. And uh, they moved back here. She got a job. She went to college. She got a job as a dental assistant. And they wanted to start a family. But they couldn't afford rent in Berkeley. Joe and Alba Duchesne are, for all intents and purposes, middle class. Hey, come on in. He's a high school teacher in the mission. She's a dental hygienist in Marin. That's really the most effective thing to do, I feel, as a journalist, is to tell the stories. And that's what we do. And one of the stories I'm proudest of when I was in Baltimore about 10, 12 years ago, I did a story on Patterson High School. Patterson High School, because it's in Baltimore, a lot of the refugees, the International Refugee Committee, resettled them in Baltimore because it was cheaper than other areas. I did a story on a family of Mauritanian refugees. They had been kicked out of Mauritania as a result of the uh, border clash between Senegal and Mauritania. Since they were black Mauritanians, they were sent to Senegal. Family of six or seven grew up in a refugee camp. Uh, the little girl, Hawa, uh, 
she was uh, Fulani, so she grew up speaking Fulani. She also ended up speaking uh, uh, Wolof, which was the main language uh, in Senegal. And when she came to this country, their father, who was educated, was educated in France. His French was impeccable. He decided to put his kids into the public schools, Baltimore public schools, uh, which are in, in disrepair. But those kids spoke no English. I talked to Hava and her sister and said, yeah, it was really hard. It took us three months to learn English. <laughs> three months. She speaks excellent uh, English. She and her sister, uh, Hule, uh, graduated with honors from Patterson High School. Both of them went to college. Both are in grad school. Both are married. And both have, uh, have started their families. And they're an American success story, just like the Italians were, just like the Mexicans were, uh, just like uh, uh, the Polish, all the other refugees who came, Chinese, all the other refugees, they're part of an American success story. And there are those success stories. I remember a radio station that I was working at, the, the owner of the radio station before it was consolidated into uh, you know, the, the big uh, corporate uh, umbrella. He was a Ronald Reagan supporter and a Ronald Reagan donor, the right-wing Republican reactionary. And uh, I had just scored a, an exclusive interview with Cesar Chavez, who to me was, uh, was, uh, was a hero. And uh, I was excited about it. I went back in the newsroom. I was sitting on the computer, and I was writing the story. And uh, he came into the newsroom, and he looked over my shoulder, and he said, What are you doing? And I said, Hey, I just scored an, uh, an exclusive with Cesar Chavez. It's an amazing interview. I'm, write I'm writing up the story. You know what he said to me? What? He said, you're not putting that communist on my airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay, whatever you say, sir. And I did the story anyway. I got, uh, uh, eventually I left that radio station for a better job. But, you know, we got to be out there. We got to keep fighting the good fight, getting the truth out, keeping our eyes on the prize, if I can use that term. Yes, you can. S still the same prize, different eyes. been in the business for 40 years. Um, rarely did I have a bad day. I figured if I was out getting information, meeting different people, telling their stories, that that was, uh, that was compensation enough. So just remembering that uh, journalism and uh, getting the truth out, okay, maybe it's not the profound truth that maybe we find in art or literature, but you know what? It's a, it's a noble profession, and uh, just keep doing it and just keep pushing forward. As my mentor, Leon Dash, once told me, we're writing the first draft of history when we go out and report. And as my mentor, Jim Morrison, said, woke up this morning, got myself a beer, the future's uncertain, the end is always near. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, here's your ride. Here comes the ambulance to take you away. <laughs> the straitjacket. They need it for me. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the smoking section. How was that cigar? Beautiful. It was beautiful. That'll do it. Let's, uh, let's do our lockout, brother. This is SUNY Collard reporting in San Francisco. Scott Letiri, San Francisco. Hasta la mañana. Adios. Sail with me. <laughs> Bye, Bye, con Dios. Bye, con Dios. Spark it up, baby.